Have you ever done something foolish? Of course, we all have, right? But it's even worse when you know better. Those are the times you really regret. And uh, I have to say, I want to tell you about a time when I did something foolish. And I've been continually reminded of it during this lockdown. Because if you're anything like me, either your screen usage hours are through the charts, right? They're off the charts, they're through the roof, and you're using your screen more than ever. And uh, so much though, it's not just those CDC recommendations, it's not just the Zoom meetings you're having, it's also those tantalizing little ads that just keep popping up on your screens. And they look pretty good to you right now. And that algorithm they have is actually pretty sweet. I mean, they're able to gather information about you so that they only send you ads that you will be attracted to and not what your husband would be, for instance. Which is why at my house, it's not books and gadgets and knives and Apple products. It is dresses, dresses, and more dresses, and maybe a pair of shoes that are showing up on my YouTube and my social media and my weather app. And uh, I have to confess, they have done their job because I've purchased both dresses and shoes while in lockdown. Maybe you have too. And I'm the kind of shopper that is never quite sure about my purchases. So much so that I currently have five dresses and four blouses in my closet with the tag still on them. This is photographic proof. This is from my actual closet. I also have six dresses waiting by my car for them to lift this shelter-in-place order for me to go return them um, because I've decided I don't want them which has led me to be a person who only shops at sites that have a brick-and-mortar store nearby because returns have to be easy or I just won't make them. So I like to shop at places like Old Navy, Macy's, The Gap, Kohl's, Target, places that I can drive to quickly and easily and to return them because in my humble opinion, it's foolish to buy anything that you can't quickly and easily return. Now, the problem is that at this moment in time, in particular, we're being faced with this temptation and this onslaught of online ads. They're coming at us day after day after day. All those cute dresses just show up on our social media feed. And we have to stop that temptation. We have to say no to ourselves. Well, I, I don't know what I was doing last summer. I, I wasn't paying attention, obviously. And when those ads came up on those cute dresses and those cute patterns showed up on my um, internet feed, I was sucked in, and I was window shopping in a hot minute, and uh, which is consistent with my keeping the tags on things in my closet. I also like to, when I'm shopping, put things in my cart, and I like to leave them there for a few days, and if in a few days I still like them, then I will think about purchasing them. Well, like I said, I don't know what I was doing last summer. I think maybe we were going to revival or heading out of town on vacation, but something happened, and I wasn't as cautious as I normally am. I'm so cautious, in fact, that I don't even leave my phone, my credit card in my phone or my computer. I actually leave my credit card in my wallet, in my purse, in my car, out in my garage, so that I can be sure I have those one or two minutes to walk down the stairs and actually think about my purchase before I click that place order button prematurely. I don't want to do something before I'm absolutely positive of it. And like I said last summer, I guess I was in a hurry. I got distracted. I don't know. I had a brain freeze. But somehow, I had all of a sudden purchased six cute, flowy blouses and dresses and spent over $150 at a site I had never heard of before, who did not have a brick-and-mortar store nearby, which was not very smart for a girl who literally returned 75% of what I purchased. 
Well, eventually my cute stuff showed up at my door. And I'm not sure, but I guess the models hadn't hit puberty yet, but something happened and none of the sizes were right. And on top of that, the fabric. The fabric was really odd. Um, it was scratchy. It was plasticky, for, for lack of a better word. And on top of that, it reeked. And true to form for me, uh, I was going to return almost all of it. In fact, only one dress actually made the cut. Now I was forced with the grueling task of returning all of these items, this now $130 worth of products that I did not want anymore, and I didn't even know where to send it. You see, you had to put in your order number for this particular site in order for them to tell you what the return address would be, which sounded a little fishy to me. But I begrudgingly headed out to the post office to buy packing materials that I don't own, ugh, and to find that I had to pay $35 in shipping to send back my $130 of products to Shanghai. Well, I had a moment there at the post office where I was literally thinking, should I just eat this purchase? Should I just eat the $130 and not add $35 more to this thing? And I was like, no, it's just going to take very little effort to buy this packaging and wrap it up and pay the $35. And then I'm going to get back almost $100. So surely I should go through this effort right now. And uh, so that's what I decided to do, except I thought I'm never going to tell anybody about this foolishness that I did. This is going to be my little secret, except maybe the people inside the four rooms of my home. And then I'm just going to keep it to myself until, of course, I had to come up with a good sermon illustration. Well, at that point, I was told it would take six to eight weeks for me to get my return, for my package to make it to China and get a return from this company. And so I waited because there was no way I was ever going to pay extra to get it there any quicker. So I sent out my package, and here it is. This is an actual picture of my package that I sent out on September 3rd back to China with my $130 worth of products. And I waited two months. So it was September, and I waited till November before I started emailing the company. Hey, where's my return? And then I emailed them in December. Then I emailed them in January. And at this point, I decided, okay, you're just going to have to swallow this, this now $165 mistake, and just swallow it and move on, and you got taken. When five months after I sent it, five months after I sent it, on February 15th, this showed up in my mailbox. Uh, my return had come back to me all the way back in five months. There was return to sender labels all across the top. And then across the back, there was a gigantic rip, but all those cute but odd flowy dresses and blouses were safely inside of it. They had made it all the way to China and back to me again. Buyer beware is right. Talk about a slow boat to China. Times two, right? So what happened? Well, it's simple, really. I trusted the wrong people. I did something foolish, and I got burnt. And it's a lesson that I will not soon forget. Even as I've been sitting here in quarantine wanting to order some of those cute flowy dresses, I've been like, no, remember. Remember what happened last time. And it's hopefully a lesson that I can teach you as well. Because it does matter who you put your trust in. Now, I guess it's not such a big deal when it's an online purchase. I mean, all I lost was money and some aggravation. But when things are really important, it does matter who you trust in. It does matter um, that you put your trust 
in things that are trustworthy and not just any old thing. When it's something important like the philosophy of life you adhere to or the path you're going to take or who you're going to entrust your future and even your destiny to, that matters a whole lot. And it's at those moments that you need to go to the one, the one who knows everything, the one who made everything, the one who provided us with a way to be saved. And it's the time for us to go to the only book that one ever wrote, our Bibles, because it's there that we will find his wisdom and his help, because it's the only safe place to truly put our trust. And our theme verse today is in Proverbs 8, and it's going to speak to us about pursuing God's wisdom in God's word. And Proverbs 8, verses 32 to 36 says this, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. You see, when we boil it all down, uh, Proverbs 8 would tell us that wisdom comes from seeking, from knowing and doing God's word. And this passage actually gives us five ways that we are supposed to pursue God's wisdom. They're listed right in our passage. They are to listen, to keep, to watch, to wait, to find. Listen, keep, watch, wait, find. Let's look at each of them quickly in this passage. The first is to listen. To listen means not only to actually hear the word, but to understand it and obey it. And then comes to keep. To keep is an extension of listening. This time you're listening, yes, but you're really listening in order to hold on to it so that you could be able to do it. And then there's the word watch. To watch means to be alert in seeking wisdom. Um, to be so alert, it's as though you're standing at your front door waiting for your loved one to come home. You're watching for them. And there's an anticipation to it. Then there's to wait. And wait adds a whole other level of expectation as you're standing at the door watching or pursuing wisdom. You're thinking about the benefits that will come from pursuing wisdom or from seeing that loved one when they walk through the door. And then there is to find. To find implies that some sort of effort is involved in all of this, that you're going to have to dig in to get God's wisdom. And besides telling us how to pursue God's wisdom, this passage also tells us the rewards and the benefits that await us when we pursue God's wisdom. And here they are. God promises first that we would be blessed. Then he says we will find life. And lastly, he says we will obtain favor or we'll get favor from the Lord. To be blessed means that we're going to be happy and satisfied. To find life, we're going to have a good life here and on into eternity with Christ. And then to obtain favor is to get good things from the Lord. Now, this passage also gives us a whole full-orbed picture because Proverbs 8 also warns us, warns us what happens when we don't pursue wisdom. And it tells us here that when we neglect it or when we fail to go after it, that we will be injured and we will die. Now, obviously, people we know that have made not very wise choices in their life have ended up with harmful consequences. But this is even more than that. Not only will you be injured, but you will die. It's, it's talking about those who don't pursue God's wisdom will also end up spending eternity apart from him forever. So of course we should be pursuing God's wisdom. There's no doubt about it because it's right, but also because it promises us a good end, a good eternity. 
Now today, I would like to introduce you to an organization that was initially set up to pursue just that, to pursue God's wisdom. And I'd like to talk to you about the gal who was initially partly responsible for founding it. This is an organization that you're familiar with. You actually see this organization in action every year at Christmas time. You hear their bells, you see their red kettles at the brick and mortar stores that we're all going to be shopping at very soon. It's called the Salvation Army. Now, some things about the Salvation Army are good, some not so good, but today we're going to talk about the good things. And we're going to talk about the woman who, along with her husband, helped to establish this organization. Her name was Catherine Booth. Now, Catherine wisely cared for the lost. She took the gospel seriously, and she and her husband spent their whole lives giving God's wisdom that Jesus Christ saves the gospel to anyone who would listen. She was born Catherine Mumford on January 17th in 1829 in a place called Derbyshire, England. And according to her biographer, God gave her the greatest gift he could ever give someone, a good and holy mother. And the most important thing that her good and holy mother did for her is give her a love of God's word. They read the word together all the time. In fact, Catherine's mother taught her to read by the time she was five years old, and they would spend hour upon hour reading the Bible to each other from that time on. Catherine loved God's word so much that it's been said by her biographers that by the time she was 12 years old, get this, by the time she was 12 years old, she had read the Bible cover to cover eight times. Wow. Throughout her life, people were continually astonished with how quickly and easily Catherine was able to answer their Bible questions or help them with spiritual matters, and it's because she spent hours in this book. Now, sadly, as a teenager, Catherine developed a curvature in her spine, and it was actually um, very painful, debilitating pain that would last her entire life. But as a teenager, she was forced to lay down flat in a bed for three straight years because of it. The doctors told her that she would never walk again, but she didn't take it to heart. She didn't get bummed out about it. She used her lockdown. She used her sheltering for good. She spent that time knitting and sewing things for those in need, and she spent that time reading. She read and she read and she read. She read her Bible again and again, and she read theology books, and she poured herself into the biographies of great Christians. She used that time. She also sought God all throughout her childhood, but it wasn't until she was 16 that she um, finally surrendered all of herself and got assurance of her salvation. She says that she was reading a Charles Wesley hymn when it happened, and these were the words she read, "'My God, I am thine, what a comfort divine, what a blessing to know that Jesus is mine.'" She says, "'These words came to my inmost soul with a force and illumination.'" they had never possessed before. Previously, not all the promises in the Bible could induce me to believe, and now not all the devils in hell could persuade me to doubt. I no longer hoped I was saved. I was certain of it. Now, Catherine had to overcome many things in her life, including um, that painful spinal issue she had. But another thing she overcame in her life was her intense fear of doing anything in public. At one point, she was asked in a prayer meeting by the leader to lead in prayer. Hey, could you pray for us? The woman said. 
Well, Catherine was so freaked out by that, she almost fainted. She had to take a bunch of deep breaths, and it actually took her a few minutes to even be able to pray a few words in that prayer meeting. Afterwards, she caught up with the leader, and she said, please, don't ever call on me again. To which this very wise woman said to Catherine, I can't help that. You must break through your timidity, for otherwise you will be of no use to God. And Catherine took that to heart. Now, Catherine longed to be more mature. She longed to grow in her spiritual growth and disciplines. So she realized that the key to that was the daily time she spent in her Bible study and prayer. So she wrote herself a bunch of resolutions, and she read them to herself every week to remind her where she wanted to go and what she wanted to do to get there. And here's what she wrote about her Bible. She says, I am determined to search the scriptures more attentively, for in them I have eternal life. I have read my Bible through twice during the past 16 months, but I must read it with more prayer for light and understanding. Oh, may it be my meat and drink. May I meditate on it day and night, and then I shall bring forth fruit in season. My leaf also shall not wither, and whatever I do shall prosper. Now, about three months after Catherine took her first breath on earth, the man who would be her husband, William Booth, took his. He was born also in England, in Nottingham, England, to an affluent Christian family on April 10. His father was a home builder for the rich, and they were very well-to-do, until sadly when William was about 12 years old, his father's business went bankrupt, and about a year later, his father died. That is why 13-year-old William Booth was forced to be a pawnbroker's apprentice at 13 years old. He had to do something to support his mother and his siblings, and so he went to work. And it was a job he hated. I mean, he despised the long hours, the tough tasks, and the horrible boss that he had. But the most discouraging thing about being a pawnbroker's apprentice was watching the families come in and share and hand over and sell their precious treasures whatever they had in order to put food on the table. Or even worse, for them to buy alcohol so that they could numb the pain of their miserable lives. And William says, very rarely was there ever a family who ever came back to buy back what they had pawned. It was super discouraging. Well, William's mom had professed Christ, um, but it was a neighbor couple who actually invited William to church. They took him to the large Wesley Chapel in their town, And it was there that he heard a powerful American pastor who soberly said these words, souls are dying every minute without Christ. It was that which prompted William Booth to get up out of his seat, walk to the front and go and talk to someone about the gospel and to surrender his own life to follow Jesus Christ. And it was behind those doors back in that church that he said these famous words, God shall have all there is of William Booth. By the time William was 17 years old, he began to preach the gospel anywhere and everywhere. He held meetings out of doors, and he would just start preaching, and people would come up, they would listen, and they'd get saved. Everywhere he went, every day, people got saved. Now, those people, those new Christians that William was bringing to Christ, they didn't exactly fit in the established churches of their day. Um, They were kind of rough-and-tumble people, because he was always attracted to those who were kind of down on their luck, and... Um, Most churches didn't want these people in their doors. In fact, they told them, don't come in the front door of the church. Come in the back. And, oh, by the way, sit in the back. And wait, sit behind a screen here because we do not want you to, you know, unnecessarily upset any of our regular attenders. 
Nobody wanted them in their churches. And frankly, they didn't want to be there either. But at this point in time, that's all that they had. Well, William would continue to preach. He preached and preached. And by the time he was 20, he was getting more and more invitations to preach at various churches across England, which is how he ended up in the church where his future wife, Catherine, and his future mother-in-law were sitting one day in a town called Brixton. And William preached in a way that was different than Catherine and her mother had ever heard. He spoke to people's hearts, and he cared more for the lost than he cared about preaching the perfect sermon. Well, Catherine and William, they met that night, and they say it was love at first sight. In fact, so much so that by the time they had their second meeting, they were talking about getting married. These two had so much in common. Um, Two major things, though. One was their love for non-Christians, and two was their hatred, their absolute hatred of alcohol, of which Catherine had seen it destroy her own father's life. Well, William loved Catherine, but he knew that he had nothing to offer her. So he wrote her of his concerns, and she wrote him these words back. My dear friend, the thought that I should cause you any suffering or increase your perplexity is almost unbearable. I am tempted to wish that we had never met. Do try to forget me, as long as the remembrance would injure your usefulness or spoil your peace. Thy will be done, God, is my constant cry. I care not for myself, but oh, if I cause you to err, I shall never be happy again. Eventually, William would take a job as a pastor, but it was far away from Catherine, and they were separated for a while. But then he got the opportunity to do some guest preaching here and there in London, which was much closer to Catherine. Now, most girls would be jumping up and down and saying, oh, I want to see my fiance. Of course, take these jobs in London. And Catherine got this letter from William talking to him about these, talking to her about these opportunities um, to come near her. And this is what she wrote back to him. She said, I wish that you prayed more and talked less about this matter. Try it and be determined to get clear as to your course. Leave your heart before God and be satisfied in his sight and then do it, be it whatever it may be. Wow, this gal was hardcore. Her letters to William and others were full of biblical counsel and spiritual common sense and William loved it. I mean, he was so happy for her help. She became his sounding board, his encouragement, his confidant, his partner, um, Eventually, he would even ask her to help him study the Bible and outline sermons that he was preaching. He depended on her. After about three years' time, they were finally able to get married. And that was so great because now they could travel together as William was preaching in town to town. And the life of an evangelist, though, was a pretty rough gig for a newlywed couple. Just imagine it. Just think about it for a minute. Um, They would travel to a new town and they would spend weeks there, maybe months there, living in some stranger's home, in some stranger's back room. And then a few weeks or months later, they would move on to another town, and it would start all over again. But young Catherine, she never complained. She was always his biggest cheerleader, and she was always totally sold out to his soul-winning efforts. It was her joy to serve beside him, even when she found that she was expecting their first child. It was at this point that Catherine's mother um, wrote to Catherine and said, hey, maybe it's time to settle down. You're going to have a baby. And then when she refused to do that, she offered to take the baby so that Catherine and William could minister for Christ together undistracted. Well, Catherine would have nothing to do with it. She was totally committed to supporting William's evangelistic efforts. Baby or no baby, that's what she was going to do. Well, then a few years into their marriage, um, a couple kids into it, 
um, William decided to take a pastoral job. And uh, the two of them now would work together seamlessly in the local church. And they became true partners. Catherine was able to discuss anything from history to theology to the Bible to current events at the drop of the hat. And she was always on the same page as William. The life of a pastor and pastor's wife was so much more stable than a traveling evangelist for this young family. And William enjoyed quite a bit of success there. Catherine was able to lead prayer groups and teach Bible studies and visit people in, in their homes and host people. And even even though things were going well, both William and Catherine knew this is not what he was really meant to do. God had planned for William to be out there on the front lines of evangelistic work out on the streets. Now, by his own admission, William would have told you that he would never have accomplished what he did without Catherine. And it's true. You see, William was emotional. He was dramatic. But she, she was steady. She was level-headed. William, he was the visionary. He was a brilliant innovator. But she was the encouragement that gave him wings to fly. She was the thinker. He was the doer. They were actually the perfect pair. And they accomplished so much together. That's why, even though William was successful in the local church, his love for non-Christians would eventually take him out of it. And uh, that's this decision that they made, that they were forced to making, took them um, some, some time to think about and to plan for. Um, but they prayed and they hashed it out. Of course, Catherine was going to have a lot more to lose. She was going to lose her home. She was going to lose a steady income. And she was going to lose the daily presence of her husband with their now four children at this point in their marriage. This is what she wrote to her mother during this time. She said, pray for me. I have many a conflict in regard to the proposed new departure. Not as to our support, I can trust the Lord implicitly for all of that. But the devil tells me I shall never be able to endure the loneliness and separation of this life. But I cling to the promise, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I have told William that if he takes this step, that I would never say a word. No, to blame him for making a sacrifice for God and conscience sake would be worse than wicked. So whatever be the result, I shall make up my mind to endure it patiently, looking to the Lord for grace and strength. Well, and, and they decide that William should quit his job as a pastor and that he should become a traveling evangelist permanently. And so he began to travel around, and Catherine was passionate about seeing souls saved as well. Her husband would fervently preach God's word, and Catherine would be right there beside him, um, preaching the gospel to individuals that were coming to Christ. She would even at, was even asked at one point to share her testimony during William's services, and she did. And eventually, Catherine would even make it her practice to proclaim the gospel to anyone who would listen to her. One set of meetings that William preached was scheduled to last seven weeks. It extended to 18 months. During that time, it is said that 7,000 people came to Christ. Um, it was a spiritual awakening uh, likened to the Wesley brothers the century earlier. People traveled from miles around to come and hear William speak. And of course, crowding became an issue, so William rented a big circus tent. And then he was able to preach to a lot more people under this big tent. And criminals, drunks, and prostitutes began pouring into William's services and getting saved night after night after night. Well, besides all of this and being William's faithful ministry partner, Catherine's next most important job was being a mother. And as you can tell from 
what you know of her so far, she took this responsibility pretty seriously. In fact, when her mother had asked her if she would let her take the baby so she could go do ministry, this is what Catherine wrote to her mother. She said, I cannot part with him, first, because I know the child's affections could not be weaned from us, and second, because the next year will be the most important of his life with reference to managing his will, and in this I cannot but distrust you. I know, my darling mother, you could not wage war with his self-will so resolutely as to subdue it, and then my child would be ruined, for he must be taught implicit, uncompromising obedience." When asked the secret to raising a godly Christian family, when a young mom came to her and asked her the secret to that, this is what she told the gal. She said, the very first principle is that you, mom, acknowledge God's entire ownership of your children. Wow, what a gal. Catherine was full of wisdom for her children. She gave it to them when, she was, when they were in her home. And when they left her home, she wrote wisdom to them. She had very high expectations for each one of them. Listen to what she wrote to her oldest son um, about his life and his destiny. She said this, I hope the Lord will make you so miserable everywhere and at everything else that you will be compelled to preach. Oh, my boy, the Lord wants such as you, just such, to go out amongst the people seeking nothing but the things that are Jesus Christ. You are free to do it, able by his grace, born to do it with splendid opportunities. Will you not rise to your destiny? Have courage and be strong, and the I am will be with thee. Dare you not take hold of the arm that holds the world and all things up? And if you do, can you fail? The Lord girds you with his strength. You must preach. Wow. What could God do with a mother like that? Plenty, I assure you. Well, after about a decade of marriage, in 1865, when they were now 36 years old and had, let's see, six children and a seventh on the way, the Booths were faced with yet another crossroads in their lives. William had been preaching that night, an evangelistic meeting as usual, when he was walking through town on his way home and he became distraught. And he walked in the door and he said to Catherine, he said, oh, Catherine, as I pass by the doors of the flaming gin palaces or the saloons tonight, I seem to hear a voice sounding in my ears. Where can you go and find such heathen as these? And where is there so great a need for your labors? The poverty and despair in the East End of London just broke William's heart. He understood that there was no way to make a lasting difference in this part of London, which was like a whole nother city of slums and despair. The only way to make a lasting difference there was for Jesus Christ to come in and convert people and change their lives. As Catherine listened to William speak that night, she says Satan was tempting her to fear, to be afraid of another change in their life and even less financial stability for her family. But as usual, she would accepted God's will for William's life with an anything, any place, any time kind of attitude. And so William Booth began, along with Catherine, um, what they called the Christian mission that night. It would become their life's work, working among the poorest of the poor in London. William said, these people shall be our people and they shall have our God for their God. And so he began to set up and preach just outside one of the saloons in the slums of the East End of London. He would sing a song that would draw a crowd, and then he would preach the gospel, and he would call people to follow Christ. And oftentimes, Catherine would be right there beside him, helping people become Christians and followers of Christ. 
Now, obviously, many people applauded this, the reformation of people's lives, of sinners in the slums of London. But sadly, others did not. And there were many nights when William was jeered and mocked and when people started throwing rotten eggs at him. And when it got to the point where it was, you know, rocks and bottles and sticks and William came home bleeding and battered and bruised, Catherine would simply bandage him up and send him out night after night after night. He was literally preaching every night and three times on Sunday, as they say, but he loved these people and they loved him back. And one night he brought his son, his oldest son with him as he went out to the work that evening. And he said to them, these are our people's son. These are the people I want to live for and to bring to Christ, as he showed him the drunk and violent men and women of the East End of London. Now, Catherine, for her part, worked among the children in particular. There were terrible working conditions and terrible child labor situations going on. In fact, uh, Charles Dickens' book, Oliver Twist had come out recently and, and showed the entire world the horrific conditions in this part of London at this time. And she began campaigning for fair child labor laws, even in Parliament. And then she began helping and trying to get young girls and women out of their life of prostitution, girls who had been literally kidnapped and taken into this life and couldn't get out. She was showing up at their door and sharing the gospel with them and helping them to escape. They even built factories where workers could have a job and, and live and work with safe working environments and make a good wage, a fair wage, to take care of their children at home. And they continued to share the gospel in all of these places. The Booths also tackled the blight, the bane of alcohol. In the slums of London, it was said that every fifth store front was a bar, a pub, a saloon. And that if you were to put them end to end, it would go a three-mile stretch of London with all just bars and pubs. Even children were craving their next drink, it was said at this time. They were going through withdrawals and they were dying of cirrhosis of the liver as young as five years old. But William and Catherine Booth went in there and they helped these men, women, and children escape alcoholism and escape this drink and uh, be converted through repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. They changed their lives. Well, as people started getting saved, more and more people, they realized they needed places to be trained, and they started renting buildings, including this one in London. They actually met in a wool store, a dance academy, a theater, and even a stable at this point. Um, they were meeting in 11 different buildings, and in a dance hall on Sunday, they were having 17 open-air meetings and 20 indoor meetings every single week at this point in time. Now, Catherine was teaching classes at this time on the Bible, on modesty, on parenting, and the church was providing breakfast. On Sunday mornings, they were serving 1,000 people at one site, and they were serving 800 people at another site to bring the people into church to hear the gospel as William and others would preach it. William, for his part, was managing multiple services and multiple sites, and he was truly a man who was ahead of his time. William also prayed for a hundred workers to join him in this evangelistic effort, but he had some pretty strict criteria. He said the people who came to work for him had to meet three criteria. They had to have a definite decision to follow Christ. They had to preach repentance and they had to live a changed life of good works when it was over. And when they were preaching, they had to have that kind of life. Now, lots of people applied. Lots of people wanted to be a part of William's mission, 
But if they didn't meet those criteria, he was very strict and, and he did not have them in his group. Now, another innovation that he made was adding contemporary music to the whole thing. People who were getting saved that he was reaching, uh, they didn't want church music. They didn't like organs and things like that. And so he added uh, bass drums and brass instruments and banjos. And if you couldn't preach, he taught you to be a musician and you got to beat a drum. Um, he also started factories where they actually began manufacturing instruments and they started building what they called hallelujah bands. And he popularized the sentiment, may not have been original to him, but why should the devil have all the good music? And they found not only was a band great because it brought people in and attracted them, but it also drowned out the opposition to those meetings that they had. Another thing that they did in this mission was they began to adopt a military motif, complete with uniforms, flags, titles, and they embraced a hymn that had been written just 10 years earlier as their unofficial theme song, Onward Christian Soldiers. Then a few years into it, the ministry leaders were reading the annual report, the annual report of their ministry, and Booth's oldest son noticed that it said, Christian mission. And then underneath it said, a volunteer army. And he objected. He said, I'm not a volunteer. I'm a regular or nothing at all. And the story goes that William leaned over and scratched out the word volunteer at that point, and he wrote in the word salvation. From that point on, this movement that William and Catherine Booth founded became known as the Salvation Army. When William addressed the crowd at their annual meeting that year, this is what he said. He said, we are an army organized for the deliverance of mankind from sin and the power of the devil. We called it an army of deliverance, an army of salvation, the Salvation Army. In the next five years, 427 Salvation Core groups were started across England. That's three centers opening every single week for five years. William's directive when they entered a new town was to find the worst of the worst, the worst man or woman sinner they could find and share the gospel with them. William said, when the saddest souls are transformed, their neighbors will take notice. William wanted to help people find forgiveness and for others to hear their testimony, as was the pattern. When you became a Christian, you got ready to share your testimony the next night or week. Um, he wanted the people of the towns to see the changed lives and see that God was real. He was all about the gospel. And he didn't let anything distract him um, from the work that God called him to do. He and Catherine concerned themselves with saving as many people as possible. They made sure that their Christianity was also lived out in the practical needs of meeting practical needs in the cities that they went to. And that's why um, not only did they share the gospel out in the open air or at street corners, but they also did things like teach classes. They opened shops where the poor could buy food. They started soup kitchens. They opened schools. Saving souls and salvation was, of course, their first priority, but their motto became soup, soap, and salvation. Now, the Salvation Army was not beloved by everyone, especially the bar owners who lost their best customers to Jesus Christ. The opposition got so bad in one town that the mayor said, take their flag, tie it around their necks, and hang them with it. And free drinks were offered to anyone who would break up a Salvation Army meeting. Um, these soldiers for Christ were pelted um, every night. They were pelted with things like mud, blood, dead rats, rotten eggs, and even worse. They were jeered, they were chased down, their instruments were broken, they were beaten up, and they were even imprisoned for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But people just kept getting saved. 
Well, as you can imagine, the Salvation Army eventually took over the Booth's home. Uh, bedrooms doubled as offices. Strategies were mapped out. Uh, help of every kind was distributed and forgiveness was preached over and over again. More and more people came to Christ. William was referred to as the general and Catherine as the mother of the army. Now, no family has spread the gospel farther than the Booth family did. You see, not only did William and Catherine commit themselves to this ministry, but they relinquished all eight of their children to this ministry. And the Booth children took the gospel and the fact that Jesus saves souls from England to France, the U.S., Canada, Australia, India, Denmark, Norway, South America, and Switzerland. And when the daughter that Catherine was closest to got engaged to the director of the ministry in India, this is what she said. She said, when this marriage came before me, I saw what was involved, and my first impulse was to resist and say, no, it cannot be. Then I remembered, but she is yours, Catherine. You gave her at her birth, and you have given her ever since. Are you going to hold back now? And then, when the booths were nearing 60, Catherine found out that uh, God had saved her toughest assignment for last while her children were off sharing salvation across the globe, she wasn't feeling so good. And so she went to the doctor and she went alone because nobody thought it was all that serious. And when she saw the doctor's serious, grim face, she knew it was bad news. And it truly was. It was the saddest news she had ever heard because the doctor sat her down and told her that she had developed breast cancer. And Catherine knew all about breast cancer. She had nursed her own mother through it some years earlier. The doctor told her, you're going to be facing intense suffering, and then in three years' time, you won't be living on this planet anymore. You'll be in heaven. Well, Catherine slowly got up from the chair, and she went out, and she got a cab, and she rode home. And she says it was a very dark ride. She said she actually um, just sat there and thought and prayed, and she thought about how the work needed her, how there were so many people who still needed to be saved. She thought about how William needed her. And then she decided, this is from God though. This is God's plan for me. So she knelt right there in that carriage and she prayed and she gave herself to God again. She gave him her body. She gave him her life. She gave him her family and she gave him the work. And when at long last the cab pulled up to the front door of her home, William came rushing out. And this is what he says about that time. He says, I shall never forget that meeting in this world or the next. I had been watching for the cab and I'd run out to meet her and help her up the stairs. And she tried to smile at me through her tears, but drawing me into the room soon, bit by bit, she told me what the doctor had said. I sat down speechless. She rose from her seat and she knelt beside me and she said, do you know what my first thought was? How sorry I am that I will not be there to nurse you in your last hour. Well, William was scheduled to leave for Holland that night. He had evangelistic meetings scheduled there, and Catherine would not let him stay home. There was no way he was staying home. She said, the war must go on, and she sent him out the door. She continued to work herself until she couldn't anymore, and then she wrote, and she met people in her bedroom. She says that uh, she felt like she was dying in a railway station. Because you see, the Salvation Army continued all around her. Comings and goings, telegrams, strategy meetings, fundraising. By this time, there were 2,900 centers of the Salvation Army with 10,000 officers and 50,000 meetings happening every single week all across the globe. 
by this time. Catherine said it was her greatest joy to hear of their spiritual victories and how more and more souls were becoming Christians. And they used her bedroom, actually, as their conference room until the very end. Until on October 4th in 1890, when she could no longer speak, her family came and gathered around her and they prayed with her and they sang hymns with her. And they each knelt down and they hugged and they kissed her and then she passed on into eternity. Rich and poor alike walked past her glass-covered casket in those first days after her death. 36,000 people attended her funeral, and every seat in the church was full, and many were turned away. And then 3,000 Salvation Army officers walked with her family to take her to the cemetery. Here are the words that William shared about his beloved at the graveside. Here's a few of them. He says, if you had had a friend who had understood your very nature, the rise and fall of your feelings, the bent of your thoughts, the purpose of your existence, and your friend was taken away, you would feel some sorrow at that loss. If you had had a mother for your children who cradled and nursed and trained them for the service of the living God, a mother who had never ceased to bear their sorrows and who was ever willing to pour forth her heart's blood to nurse them, and that darling mother had been taken from you, you would feel it a sorrow. If you had had a wife, a sweet love of a wife who for 40 years had never given you real cause for grief, a wife who had stood with you in the battle's front, who had been a comrade to you, ever willing to place herself between you and the enemy and your beloved one had fallen before your eyes, I'm sure there would be some excuse for your sorrow. Well, comrades, you can roll all of those qualities into one personality and that would be lost in all I have lost in one. I have been calculating how soon they will bring and lay me alongside of her. And my cry to God has been that every remaining hour of my life may make me readier to come and join her. These two shared an extraordinary love and ministry. Well, William survived his wife by 21 years, and he would use every one of them to follow Christ and to serve the Lord. He actually took an 18,000-mile trip um, at the turn of the 20th century when he was in his 70s. He traveled all across uh, the United States and Canada. He visited, get this, 87 cities. He spoke in 340 meetings to almost 440,000 people as a senior citizen. Thousands turned to Christ. Catherine would have been so pleased to hear of it. And then on William's 83rd birthday, he spoke for the very last time to 10,000 people who had gathered at Albert Hall in London. His eyesight was failing, and as he told these people, he chuckled, and he said, I'm headed into the dry docks for repair. And then he said these words before he left them. While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, I'll fight. While there is a poor lost girl on the streets, I'll fight. Where there yet remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. And he did. He fought for four more months until on August 21st in 1912, the news went out across the world that the general has laid down his sword. 40,000 people came to his funeral, including Queen Elizabeth. And they walked him to his final resting place in the cemetery next to his beloved wife, Catherine. William and Catherine were quite a pair. We might even say they were match made in heaven. Um, they were a precious union where a godly wife embraced the calling fully of her husband. But not only that, but she did everything she could to partner with him in it. 
Proverbs 18.22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And William Booth certainly did that. Catherine was quite an asset to him every day of her life. But most importantly, because at all costs, she took the gospel to lost people, to a hurt and needy world. She wanted them to understand that God's wisdom and the gospel was the most important thing they could ever find. Yes, Catherine Booth loved her Bible, and what a difference it made in her life. Um, I think it made a difference in three basic areas. First of all, through God's wisdom in his word, she had a foundation laid in her life so that she could see what she needed to say about God, see what she needed to see about herself, and become convicted of her sin before a holy God, so that at some point in her life, she could make a decision and she could say, I can't pay for this sin on my own. I need God's forgiveness. I'm going to follow him. That's the most important thing that happens when we seek God's wisdom. We come face to face with the claims of Christ. We hope that's happened for you already, but if it hasn't, do it today. Do it now. If you have questions, call us at Compass or talk to the, the person that invited you to this tea, some godly person who knows Jesus. It's the most important thing you can do with God's wisdom. Do it today. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. It's what Catherine Booth would want you to do. It's certainly what we here at Compass would want you to do. Catherine loved her Bible. She loved God's wisdom. And another thing it did in her life was it helped her to grow to love God's people. She grew to love them, but she also gave her life to serve them. Because she loved them, she served them. She loved and served her husband. She loved and served her children. She loved and served the church. And when you and I seek after God's wisdom, that's what's going to happen to us too. We're going to love God's people. We're going to begin to love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the last thing that happened to Catherine Booth because she loved the wisdom of God's word is that she truly cared for people who didn't know Christ yet. She begged God to save them, and she begged them to get saved. And she and her husband spent their whole lives getting this good news out that Jesus provides forgiveness, and they did it day after day after day. Catherine could not stand the thought of someone waking up in hell someday, and so she gave her life and her husband's life and her children's life to see that more and more people got to hear the good news that Jesus saves. That's what happens when we pursue the wisdom of God's book. We grow to love those who don't yet love Christ, and we become compelled to share that message with them. Even as we leave this quarantine, we are compelled, like Catherine and William Booth, to make sure as many people know Christ as possible. You see, as we pursue God's wisdom, some things happen. We get saved, we love the saved, and we love those who aren't yet saved. Now, Catherine sought God's wisdom in God's word. And she wrote a resolution, which we read earlier, and I want to revisit it before we leave. And I want us to think about this. This is what she said about her Bible. She said, I'm determined to search the scriptures more attentively, for in them I have eternal life. I have read my Bible through twice during the past 16 months, but I must read it with more prayer for light and understanding. Oh, may it be my meat and drink. May I meditate on it day and night. And then I shall bring forth fruit in season. My leaf also shall not wither, and whatever I do shall prosper. Ladies, may we pursue God's wisdom like that. May we be as resolved as that to make God's word our meat and drink and to pursue his wisdom. Let's pray. 
Dear God, I do want to thank you for your word and what a treasure it is and how many wonderful things we find inside of it to help us to get saved, to help us to love the saved, and to help us to love those who aren't yet saved. And we do thank you for the example of Catherine and William Booth and how they loved the lost and how they gave their whole lives to see people get right with you. God, I pray for us that we would walk out um, with that thought in mind and with that passion to see more and more people pursue God's wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.